0: Hi there, and thanks for joining us for another episode of the Room & Room podcasts. Great you could join us. My name's Charlotte Westwood. I'm a New Zealand-based veterinarian and nutritionist who works for PGG Rights and Seeds based here in Lincoln, Canterbury. Now, if you're new to these podcasts, these uh, Room & Room episodes are actually an offshoot from the Facebook group, The Room & Room. Uh, So if you're not already a member of that group, head over and join in the group for a little bit of ruminant nutrition and animal health discussions uh, within our community in that private group. Hope you can join us there. Well, just backtracking to our previous podcast, and if you've listened to that one, you'll recall that we covered a lot of things to do with calf nutrition, how our younger calves digest milk, uh, what the drivers are to start nibbling away at starter feed and the like. And what we're going to talk about in this one some bits and pieces to do with nutritional scours in your calves. Listen in, settle in at home with your feet up perhaps, or if you're doing your usual multitasking skills of listening in while you're doing other things, whether you're feeding calves, maybe you're doing the uh, the springer paddock check, hosing down after milking, or you're yeah, doing that yet another trip into town to run around after the kids, just whatever, Settle in and I uh, hope that you find some of this nutritional scouring information helpful for your calves. Just confirming that when we say scours and scouring with regard to calves, or, or all of our adult animals as well, that's uh, Kiwi speak for diarrhoea. Uh, so the runs, squirty stuff out the back end of calves. So yeah, just clarifying that one. So let's categorise firstly scours or diarrhoea in calves. In terms of what causes scars? Well, with regard to the causes of scars, we tend to slot them under like two broad headings. And the number one heading, I guess, is indeed this topic, nutritional scars. And sometimes we'll see them categorised as non-infectious scars, as the name suggests. But the second heading is the opposite of that, is infectious scars. Now, those are the types of scars or diarrhoea that are caused by the bad bugs, the pathogens um, that the calf will inevitably pick up from its environment in the calf shed. There's often, particularly in younger calves, an overlap between nutritional scours that occur first and then we get infectious scars from bacteria, uh, viruses, protozoa that settle, like, settle in after you've already got a nutritional scour present. We'll just acknowledge very importantly at this point that You need to get your very own vet engaged, working shoulder-to-shoulder with you when you've got an issue with scars. By getting some help with them, you'll be able to differentiate whether your calves are unwell and scouring from which of those two categories, nutritional or infectious types of scars, and your vet will work very hard with you to collect samples to send away What can you do to help the vet quite often before the vet arrives or to describe what's happening when you drop some samples off at the clinic, be sent away? Look, aside from your visual appraisal and assessments of your scouring calves, including assessing the degree of dehydration, how their eyes are sunken in or not, if you're trying to categorise between nutritional or infectious scours, apart from that looking at them and getting a gut feel, and assessing the the actual uh, appearance of the dung that we'll talk about shortly, is of course having your trusty rectal thermometer ready to take the temperature of calves that are affected. With nutritional scours, the calf's temperature should be normal. Uh, Calves have a higher normal temperature than what we do. So if you've got kids at home, you've done the COVID thing recently or whatever, you'll know that the human normal temperature is about 37 degrees For a normal calf, we're looking more between that 38 and 39 range, sort of an average of 38.5, as normal for a calf. If, on the other hand, when we have temperatures that are getting upwards and over 39.5 and above, that's highly suggestive that we've got. Uh, potentially an infectious cause of the scour that you're seeing, or perhaps some other systemic infection where we've got bacteria or a virus that's affecting the calves. So to reiterate that is that if we have nutritional scours, whilst it's not nice for the calf, typically we won't have a, a raised body temperature. Your vet will take some dung samples and also likely some blood samples For example, the blood's checking to see how effective your colostrum management's been transferring the immunoglobulins, that's the antibodies from colostrum, uh, into the blood that we discussed in in the first episode of this Calf Nutrition podcast. But yeah, long story short, we really want to avoid nutritional scours, because although nutritional scours don't typically kill your calves, they'll certainly still dehydrate out and they'll still get knocked around. And remembering that the most important reason we want to avoid nutritional scours is because nutritional scours predispose them to infectious, secondary infections. So better to try and do our best to avoid nutritional scours to start with and then hopefully we'll uh, reduce the risk of infectious disease along with, of course, the very important aspects around good quality colostrum uh, as well as some of the other topics we're going to move on to shortly. If we define what are nutritional scours and why on earth do they occur, simply something's happened or gone wrong with the normal digestive process of your liquid feeds, including uh, colostrum or vat milk or transition milk or calf milk replacer somewhere between the mouth of the calf and the back end uh, where that that uh, runny poo is coming out of it's usually something to do with a problem with the digestion of the nutrients within the milk particularly the lactose component and also the protein component during the movement of, of milk or calf milk replacer through the abomasum stomach number four and into that small intestine so those of you that have already um Had a listen-in to the First Calf Nutrition podcast, you'll have a good handle on what things should be happening in a normal, happy, healthy calf. What does a nutritional scour look like? Well, you've probably all seen scours of all varying degrees and intensities and colours and grossness in your calf sheds the basic definition I guess of a nutritional scar, or in fact a malabsorption issue uh, if we've got uh, say something like rotavirus present is we've got an increase in the frequency with which calves do their poo Uh, so they they, uh, obviously dung more frequently and the volume of the dung increases. We've got a a more voluminous scar out the back end and that's because the water content uh, of the dung which also contains uh, electrolytes and other important losses as well, that's squirting out the back end way too fast. And overall, the solids content of the dung has decreased. Most cases of nutritional scour might be all sorts of uh, amazing colours. Could be anything from a bright yellow um, or perhaps just a a creamy colour or even just straight white, looking like it's milk going straight through, which, as we'll cover shortly, it quite often literally is... With nutritional scours, there's not typically blood or mucus in that, don't Never say never though, sometimes uh, if it's been scouring for a little while, there may be a bit of gut damage, so there is some blood. But of course, if you do see blood or mucus, there's a high risk that there are some pathogens, some bad bugs in there. Yeah, you know, your bacteria, viruses, uh, like rotavirus, coronavirus, or even maybe a, a protozoal pathogen, you know, maybe the cryptosporidia one, crypto. Now, your vet is the important one, as we've already said, to reach out to and ask with some help in diagnosing or excluding uh, infectious cause of scour by getting some samples taken and quite often when those results come back from the animal health lab you'll have more than one type of pathogen or or nasty bug there so it's it's really worth understanding what you're dealing with. So yeah, do get your your vet involved, particularly because the vets can offer you some symptomatic support for the calves to make them feel better and if they're quite dehydrated obviously can do things like IV fluids and that, so talk to your vet. What's The risk factors for nutritional scours. We're going to leave the topic of infectious scours behind at this point and focus for the rest of this just on nutritional scours. Now, in most cases, we've got usually what we'd describe as the perfect storm. You'll have a cluster of risk factors that have all collided together to cause a nutritional scour. It's not often just one risk factor. We'll kind of pick over one by one some of the risk factors and uh, and then you as you go can you go yeah, maybe or no no I'm all over that or yes no so you can sort of pick up and put down the risk factors and hopefully apply them to, you know, possibly a case of nutritional scours that you're dealing with now, hopefully not, uh, or perhaps that you've dealt with in the past. To understand the risk factors for nutritional scours, it's good to, I guess, understand firstly why do nutritional scours happen. Just simply the arrival of too much lactose, so lactose is the milk sugar in the milk from the abomasum and flowing into the small intestines. Now, the movement of lactose into the intestines is perfectly normal, as you recall from our first Calf Nutrition podcast, and we need lactose to be arriving into the small intestine because lactose, along with milk fat, is a really important source of energy for calves that need each and every day. So again, recalling back to the first podcast, when we've got digestion working normally, When a calf drinks colostrum or transition milk, so that's milk from your colostrum herd. It's not true colostrum, but it's not true vat milk yet either. Or perhaps a calf milk replacer or CMR, I'll shorten that up to, based on whole milk or a mixture of whole milk and skim milk-based milk powders. You'll get a clot or a curd form in the abomasum, usually within 30 minutes of a calf slurping that down. And then over the next uh, seven to eight hours, lactose, is part of the whey fraction of milk that's not trapped in that curd in the abomasum, but instead kind of just sort of oozes out gradually from the abomasum down to the small intestine over a couple of hours. Trickling, sort of a nice gradual supply of lactose into the small intestines, um, and then that gets busted down into simple sugars, glucose and galactose. If with our curding type of feeds, your colostrum whole milk's you know, vat milk and transition milk and everything, if we have an issue where that process of curding doesn't occur well, and we'll talk about some of the risk factors for curding and the abomasum not happening as well as it should do, we get like a real massive slopping of heaps of not only extra lactose arriving really quickly into the small intestine, but we get a lot of casein proteins that aren't properly digesting because they haven't stuck around in the, in the abomasum as they should have, and, and so we get all that Protein, casein proteins arriving along with lactose, and so what's the big deal if we have this overflow of too much lactose, uh, too much casein proteins arriving at the level of small intestine? Well, look, it all comes down to a process called osmosis. Now, those of you that want to know more about this osmosis thing, you know, like go for gold, have a look in Wikipedia or wherever to give you the details, but. Really quickly here in a nutshell, osmosis simply means that water moves across a semi-permeable membrane from a solution that contains low concentrations of soluble nutrients like sugars and, in this case, lactose, proteins and stuff like that, instead moves into a solution that contains high levels of the same soluble nutrients. So if we think about it, If we've got too much uh, lactose, milk proteins and minerals sitting inside the intestines because we've had this rapid throughput of too many of these nutrients uh, for the intestines to quickly digest and take out, uh, it accumulates and we have a problem. Now, the problem that's happened is that normally the calf will, um, across the intestinal wall, will resorb a lot of the water and electrolytes that are in the contents of the small intestine it's really really important The small intestine absorbs most of the water and then of course anything that in the, in the way of water that's still there by the time uh, the uh, digesting milk reaches the large intestine the large intestine of course also takes um, surplus water out of the gut contents but The small intestine actually does a lot of work taking water out. Now if we have too many of these soluble nutrients, those soluble nutrients prevent the water from flowing from the gut contents back where it belongs, into the tissues and the lymphatics and the blood of the animal. So we end up with way too much watery dung leaving the calf, and that's because There's too much water in the feces, and that's um, got a very low dry matter percent in those feces, which is why we have that rather squirty, liquid, um, not so nice nutritional scar at the back end. So first, lots of liquid scar around. But secondly, because the poor calf can't, uh, through the process of osmosis, can't get the water out of the gut contents because it stays where all those soluble nutrients are, the animal is unable to uh, take the water out of your liquid feed, if that's milk or CMR or whatever. And so the danger word here, of course, is dehydration and loss of electrolytes potentially. Hence, we have to do something about it with this nutritional scour or the calf is going to get dehydrated and you will have a lot of that yellow, creamy, white or whatever um, milk-type scour heading straight through, and it's all to do with osmosis. Now, that's the first way that nutritional scars is a baddie. The second way that nutritional scars causes a problem is that, as we've mentioned before, all of those lovely uh, fermentable, soluble nutrients are just the perfect breeding ground for our pathogens. The lactose and casein proteins that haven't been digested properly are a huge nutrient source any pathogens or nasty lurgies um, that are already in the small intestines and I guess the way to think about it and those of you like me that have got uh, teenagers it's kind of (laughs) like if you picture this maybe um, a healthy calf is like just having a few teenagers over for a beer they've only got a few beers or RTDs and and life's easy that's just like the few pathogens hang around in the intestines and behave because they haven't got too many RTDs or beers Additional lactose and undigested casein proteins to suddenly pour into the small intestines. It's kind of like the gate cat crashes arriving at your teenager's 18th birthday party, loaded up with extra RTDs and beers and all their mates, and it's full on mayhem. Well, just think the same thing happens. The pathogens multiply up really fast, and I guess we could say they start a bit of a poo party. Anyway, poor old calf, she'll start to scour. Uh, the pathogens in many cases will damage uh, the very tiny villi, the lining of the intestines, and is unable therefore to absorb water and nutrients, including electrolytes and other stuff, and we end up with an infectious scare that simply started off as a nutritional scour from too much lactose and maybe casein proteins arriving into the small intestine. So that's with regard to uh, curding uh, type of feeds so, colostrum milk and uh, skim milk powder and whole milk powder based calf milk replaces. and we'll talk a little bit more shortly about whey based uh, CMRs and how this isn't necessarily always the case. And calves, when hygiene's good, uh, is uh, likely to do pretty well on. Um, especially older calves will do better or well on. Will do better on whey based CMRs. So I guess this pathogen load is one of the reasons why we all need to be so very careful with hygiene, particularly for these younger calves, you know, younger than two to three months of age, and why we need to work really hard of, you know, keeping things clean, scrubbing down and disinfecting all your feeding uh, equipment, um, you know, with Vircon, uh, maybe um you know, having different sets of wet weather gear and everything for your sick calf pen versus when you're going backwards and forwards into your healthy calves and aiming to keep bacteria and viruses out of things like cracked old worn teats, that sort of thing. So the aim of keeping good hygiene around the shed, of course, is keeping um, levels of pathogens low or out of the small intestines uh, and so that if you do get an overflow of nutrients with a nutritional scare um, that's trying to keep the door locked on uh, additional uh, teenagers turning up with RTDs and, and adding to your 18th birthday teenage party. So what are some of the risk factors for spillage uh, of too much lactose or casein proteins into the small intestine from the abomasum? Well look, we'll pick on the main factors and as we go, um, hopefully think up some practical ideas to try and reduce risk of that spillage of lactose and casein proteins into the small intestine. So look, number one risk factor for spillage of lactose and casein proteins into the intestines so that we get nutritional scours is stress. Yeah, good old stress. It's not good for us this time of year. And it's not good for our baby calves, particularly during that first couple of weeks of age. Stress is considered the number one risk factor for nutritional scars, but we'll we'll cover through a few other ones as well. Why the hell does stress on calves, young calves, cause nutritional scars? The way that the scientists reckon stress works is that very stressed calves will respond to that stress by reducing the secretion of acid into the abomasum, the fourth stomach, and we covered that aspect of the importance of acid production, particularly for keeping pathogens out, because some of the pathogens will get murdered as they flow through their abomasum. But the second point around the requirement for normal acid in the intestine is that, as you remember from the first podcast in these series, acid's doing a couple of things, and these things are very important for digestion particularly of casein proteins. So firstly, acid converts what we call proenzymes into active enzymes. And the two enzymes you'll remember is uh, renin, other, otherwise known as chymosin. Uh, and renin isn't always present in the abomasum in its active form. It's actually present as prorenin. that then, when the presence of acid gets turned into active renin. So if we don't have enough acid, your renin, that's important for causing the clot or the curd, that renin's not present in its active form, so you're going to reduce the likelihood of a curd forming. So yeah, less acid means less renin, less renin, less well-formed curd, and we get the movement of a heap of only partly curded milk in the intestines, taking all that casein protein and remembering that the small intestine isn't very well set up to deal with partly broken-down casein proteins. Really, the... Proteins need to sit in the curd for long enough to get broken down and for another enzyme called pepsin to start to break down that casein protein. So bad news if we don't have enough acid. So under that broader heading of stress, I guess calves can be stressed from all manner of reasons that can affect very young calves. So let's look at some of the causes of stress for our calves. Now, um... You'll know most of these yourself. Uh, you think about things that are most likely to stress calves are probably going to stress us as well. But we'll just sort of work through some of the things that cause calves to become stressed. And, and then maybe you can have a think about, is there anything that you could slightly change just to reduce the risk of stress uh, causing nutritional uh, scars in your calves? Well, look, first up, um, for many of you on dairy farms, you'd be picking up your calves and they're not going very far at all. They're going into a calf trailer. Hopefully you've got some soft surfaces. Uh, you might have a lot of straw on the bottom of the trailers. we <laughs> have seen all sorts of things, old mattresses, who knows what. Um, so that if they do tip over, going back to the shed, you know, they're not going to get trodden on by their mates. Um, that not only stresses them, but also can damage the navel and increase risk of navel ill as well. Anyway, we, we digress on that. But look, for those of you, the majority uh, will go just as far as the shed and may stay in the shed for you know uh, up to four days if you're selling through to a calf rearer for dairy beef or whatever. So it's particularly when you send calves to the sale uh, and they then are trucked there, they're in a pen, then they're reloaded and trucked elsewhere. Or even if you're selling direct to a calf rearer and they're being trucked for quite a long distance, it's the longer distance transport is a real risk factor for nutritional uh, scours. So I guess the stress of transport, you know, they're rocking around in the back of a trailer or a ute, um, despite your best efforts putting up tarps wrapped around your trailer or whatever, they could be experiencing cold stress uh, of wind chill, despite your best efforts, uh, particularly if it's a wet day and you haven't got your trailer or ute covered. And obviously that's going to be pretty stressful for calves. And there goes that ability to secrete acid in the abomasum. There's also a little bit of suggestion that prolonged transport might increase risk of gut stasis, or a term called ileus, and that also increases the risk that uh, first milk feed, when the calf arrives at your place, uh, actually goes straight through the gut without stopping. So we've got not only not enough acid, but the gut contractions um, aren't doing what they're needing to do to slow that flow through. So if the acid or lack of doesn't get you, then this gut ileus may be a problem. A little bit of travel sickness, I suppose, almost. So, of course, after we've transported calves for quite a, a long way, you know, rearing calves, we become very fond of our little babies. And, of course, the first thing you want to do is, oh, poor little four-day-old babies, Need a lovely big feed of milk um, or a made-up calf milk replacer, and it feels intuitively a lovely thing to do. But actually, if you've transported young calves over quite a long distance, that's the last thing that the calf needs, due to you know those risks around not enough acid in the uh, the abomasum or that gut, uh, the intestinal ileus. So a few practical things that you could do here now. Probably the best suggestion is, even though you want to get milk or C M R into them, is probably make that first feed a decent feed of a good quality electrolyte. Nice and warm. Let her have a really good feed. And maybe just keep that milk or calf milk replacer away from the the calves, you know, for their first few hours at home. So, like, if you bring calves home and you get home like 8am in the morning maybe electrolytes for Bricky, and maybe not onto milk uh, or your CMR until later that afternoon when the calves have had a chance to settle in, catch your breath, a little bit calmer. Hey, the other thing, uh, even for that first milk feed, after they've had a few hours to settle in, you could do something like uh, adding a uh, product that contains renin, so you could get your straight Renco type product from the supermarket or sometimes combi products that combine probiotics and stuff as well. We'll talk more about that shortly. So that's stress from transport. What are some other things? Well, again, you guys know this. We all know this. And another key one, particularly spring calving, in colder environments particularly, is, of course, environmental stress. So that's being cold, and that's pretty rough on calves. And a a byproduct of them being cold is nutritional scars. Calves that are uh, cold with wind chill. You know, maybe you've got good ventilation in your sheds, but a little bit too much ventilation. Um, you know, you've gone onto a farm, you didn't design the sheds, or you've converted perhaps, uh, you know, three bay, three bay implement shed, and you've converted that yourself uh, to a calf shed. It may not be set up necessarily to avoid some of your prevailing winds, and it certainly can be a bit too breezy, particularly if the sheds aren't deep enough, so, you know, from standing at the gate and looking into the back of the shed, the deeper the the shed is, you know, the the you know, the longer distance from front to back of the shed, you know, at least you're out of the direct wind and wind will eddy around, but it'll be quite nice and sheltered. So wind chill cold chill is certainly a concern, particularly for smaller calves. So um you might have some calves that are a bit premature but premi calves, and particularly jerseys or jersey type kiwi cross calves. Now these baby calves, the reason they're more prone to cold stress is when you think about it, they have a higher ratio of surface area, so that's their skin, relative to the volume of the calf. So that's like its the rest of it's you know, non-skin parts, it's actual live weight. But on the other hand, a big chunky calf, so it might be a huge calf, you know, a bit of a pull to get it out, and you look at it and you think, oh my goodness, that's kind of like 40, 42 kilos or even heavier. When you think about it as a newborn calf, that's got less surface area or skin area relative to its, its chunky body weight. And when you have more surface area to volume as a ratio, that's a bigger area to lose body warmth over. So your little calves are more likely to get colder, therefore less likely uh, to have amount a decent amount of acid in the abomasum and boom, there goes those nutritional scours. Actually, the other thing with these little calves, particularly with jerseys, apart from the surface area uh, to volume ratio, is that these Jerseys, on average, have a slightly thinner skin compared to Frisians, and sometimes their coat's a little bit thinner as well compared to your black and white and beef crossbreeds. So, yeah, these little girls and guys have just uh, a higher risk of nutritional scours if they're particularly cold. So it's always worth it, I think, when we're looking at facilities, particularly when your prevailing wind is blowing, is to, I guess, strip off to down to a T-shirt. So short sleeves... Oh, I mean, keep the other stuff on, like leggings and that. Oh, dear. Um, Not literally only a T-shirt. But um, if we can go to the back of this your calf shed and not feel too cold, just in a T-shirt for 10 or 15 minutes, especially squat down to the, the level of the calves, you, they'll probably come and suck you all over and give you a bit of a hard time. But then you'll get a feel for what they're feeling at the back of the shed. If the T-shirt test leaves you feeling bloody cold with wind chill and you're really noticing it, then there's a good chance your baby calves, particularly... Those, you know, younger, that first week of life, two weeks of life, Jersey type small calves will be at greater risk of cold stress and that puts them on more of a knife edge with regard to risk of nutritional uh, scours, let alone other things like poor feed conversion efficiency because they're having to use a lot of energy to just keep themselves warm. Right, back to other stress factors. I'm sure you're just shaking your head going, yeah, come on, Charlotte, we, we know this stuff. Yeah, forgive me, maybe, You know, maybe this is just helpful for people newer to the industry. And of course, with cold stress, we've talked about wind chill. Well, of course, the other thing is is wet calves. So wet conditions that that wet their hair and have allowed rain, for example, in um, under the hair, that reduces the hair's ability to be a nice insulating layer, which is why most of you, if not all of you, Will keep your baby calves inside for that first 10 to 14 days. Um, Now, this is, I guess, ideal, but of course, we don't want to do that if, of course, we end up ironically overcrowding calves, which is another stress factor for calves. So, another cause of stress to our baby calves, it's just simply a change of routine. At the end of the day, Our very young calves, they love routine in their little new lives. They just love every day to be the same as the previous one. And they like everything to stay, please, very much the same. So some of the risk factors that increase risk of nutritional scours uh, uh, through the effects of stress and reduced acid production and the abomasum and stuff like that, is when the routine of your calves changes really quickly. So it might be as simple as little things, and this is a a bamboozling thing, how little things can increase the risk of nutritional scours. It might just be that um, you've been doing the morning feed every morning at 6.30am, regular as clockwork. Then perhaps, uh, well, 2022 topic, COVID arrives and a couple of your team members uh, stood down with COVID. And because of that, you end up doing things like having to check the springers. Then you end up having to pick up a downer cow. And through no fault of anyone's, you don't get to the calf shed till 9 a.m. Now that is enough to potentially increase the risk of nutritional scours because we've had a, a sort of a hiccup in the morning routine. So it's yeah, it's it's hard to keep the timing the same because life throws us curly challenges. But just an awareness we have to be a little bit careful with that. Other changes to routine might be suddenly changing, for example. I don't know, your submersible heater that you're using to warm up your milk um, breaks down and all of a sudden you're going from warm feeding to cold milk. Now that can be enough uh, to cause problems of nutritional scours or simply chopping and changing. It may be that you start off feeding warm milk you don't have time to warm it so you change to cold or ironically even vice versa, going from cold to warm. So essentially whatever you decide to run with, personally I love warm milk to calves, but you know, if you're in an autumn calving situation in Northland, in New Zealand, you, you you know may not need so much to have the uh, warm milk. Whatever you decide to run with, long story short, just stick with it, either warm or cold. Uh, but like we say, we love our baby calves to have a, a warm belly full of milk. I know you'd agree, It's what I'd want if I was a calf particularly the little Jerseys remembering. Now another stressor can actually be changing the person feeding the calves. So it may be that uh, you're in a large calf-rearing facility and you work shift work and just simply the, the different routine of one person to the other. You know, that uh, the order in which someone does something how they move and act and talk or uh, around the calves, that's enough to increase stress and therefore nutritional scours. So... Hopefully, if you do have changes of team members, you have a reasonably strict routine so the poor wee boys and girls don't get too stressed. Mentioned before, and this is a bit of a trick at the moment, uh, certainly this year where we have issues with bobby calves being slow to be picked up at the moment, is that overcrowding in pens. So, essentially, in the ideal world, that doesn't always happen, we really like to have, well, personally, we like, I think, to have, you know, two or even 2.5 square meter per calf, and we like sort of groups smaller than 20 calves per, per pen. Again, we have to break these rules and we have to do it, but obviously calves, uh, just like us, that uh, they do like a little bit of personal space and, uh, and not being stacked in, you know, with not a lot of run, room to run around and play and, and to have their personal space. So do what you can, but accepting, that's not always going to be, be easy to do. I guess a fifth example of a stressor on a calf is of course if that crocodile crook or like sick with some other problem. And perhaps you've got a number of calves that have picked up navel ill and maybe that's progressed to joint ill, or maybe your facility for calves isn't as ventilated as it could be and you've got a touch of pneumonia or something else that's going on. Then they've got what we call a degree of physiological stress, and that's just a stress at a at the level of the body because of other problems uh, like systemic issues and, and that'll increase risk of nutritional scars as well. So I guess summing up, the less that we can stress calves, the lesser the risk of nutritional scars. So at the end of the day, do what you can. You've probably come onto a farm that hasn't necessarily been purpose built and you're doing your very best. So do keep doing your very best and just understanding that some stresses we can't do much about but if we can keep that abomasum functioning normally and, and healthily, uh, for particularly for our curding types of liquid feeds, that'll certainly improve things. So I guess we'll leave that stress story and, and what happens with nutritional scours behind and we'll look at other risk factors for nutritional scours. I guess we'll move more onto the topic now about calf milk replacers or, as we said before, CMRs. To understand the risk factors of CMRs for nutritional scours, I guess we first need to define just the broad categories of different CMRs because if you Google, you know, purchase CMR, NZ or whatever country you're in, you'll go to all the rural retailer sites or perhaps the CMR supplier sites and pick up a huge amount of information there. So do do your homework there and talk to your retailer rep or your vet or... If you have a nutritionist that helps out with the business, get them involved too. But look, just a scene set, the, the broad categories, I guess, of CMRs that we look at is that they tend to be grouped into curding CMRs. So they're the ones that are based on skim milk powder or perhaps a mixture of skim and whole milk powder. And these ones are typically, as we said, the curding ones and therefore Things that go wrong with these CMRs can contribute to nutritional scours quite often if that curd isn't forming properly. So we'll talk more about this in a moment. Otherwise, the other main category of CMRs here in New Zealand, probably about three quarters or so of uh, CMRs sold in New Zealand, we understand are whey-based. And as the name suggests, of course, they're based on whey-based Byproducts, so dried whey or dry, dried whey uh, protein concentrate or other forms of whey that are dried down to a powder. So as you'll recall, the name whey obviously describes that during the process of cheese making, the curd has formed and taken majority, if not all, of the casein proteins out and a lot of the fat as well. So we're just left with the whey uh, goodies such as the whey proteins, lactose and and quite a lot of minerals as well. So that's the other category. So summing up our two categories of the curding ones uh, based on skim and or whole milk powder and the whey-based ones. And there's a huge range of whey-based ones we'll talk about as we move through these topics. So look, they're the broad headings of CMRs but the other thing to remember of course is that of all of the suppliers' products out there, Uh, Here in New Zealand, we have a large range. Australia will be the same. Uh, United States will be the same. You'll obviously have to look at a product-by-product basis, but certainly here in New Zealand, all of our various proprietary products that are sold to us by suppliers and the retailers, so a lot of stuff will be added by the manufacturer, like additional vitamins, fat-soluble vitamins, uh, minerals, uh, short-chain fatty acids like butyrate, Um, So you get your acidified CMRs, uh, probiotics loaded up with good bacteria, and we'll come back to those shortly, uh, aiming to keep the intestines populated with healthy, lovely, friendly bacteria and trying to keep some of those pathogens out. And of course, coccidiostats are included in some as well, and you can go back and have a listen to the First Calf podcast to hear about the importance of coccidiostats to pre-weaned calves. So... Summing up, I guess, is what we're saying is that not all CMRs are created equal, even under the the subheadings of curding and whey-based CMRs. Let's kick off with the first category around the curding CMRs and potential risk factors for nutritional scars. Hopefully you've heard about curding CMRs. Uh, We talked about them briefly in the um, previous podcast. But look, as the name suggests... Provided we've got good quality uh, whole or skim or combination of both milk powders in that CMR, when the calf drinks these mixed or reconstituted CMRs, we should hopefully get a lovely curd or clot forming in the abomasum under the influence of um, the enzymes and the acid in that abomasum. So that's if things are going well. Now where things can come unstuck is that... Occasionally during the manufacturing process of milk powders, and remembering that most of these are manufactured for human consumption, sometimes if the heat is too high or we have other faults in the manufacturing process, we can get a bit of damage to the casein proteins in that milk powder. And remembering that it's that coating of the kappa casein molecule in the presence um, of renin and acid, That slows the movement of milk from the abomasum to the intestines, allowing the casein proteins to get broken down. And if calves drink a uh, heat damaged, or during the manufacturing process, those casein proteins are heat damaged, the curd might only partly form, or worst case, really doesn't form properly at all. So all of that calf milk replacer, the nutrients in it, flows very quickly to the intestines. And this may overwhelm the small intestine's ability to to deal to the lactose but also uh, the casein proteins in the intestine because the intestine's not well set up to digest casein proteins and we do rely on the enzymes in the abomasin to deal to those proteins and smash them down into the components of peptides and individual amino acids. So if it hasn't stuck in the abomasum for very long, we get entire casein proteins ending up in the intestines, and that's not particularly helpful. It increases risk of uh, nutritional scars, and therefore nutritional scars, if we also have some pathogens, some bad bacteria, viruses sitting in the intestine, then we'll get a potentially secondary infectious uh, scare happening as well. So not really ideal. Look, as far as I guess we we put a degree of trust and reliance uh, in the suppliers of these products that we have got a decent curd forming uh, skim and or whole milk based milk powder for our calves. And the other thing that you can do, if in doubt, uh, is to actually do what we call curd testing. And I suspect a lot of you are already doing this. So if you Google, you'll find a lot of information about how to do a curd test um, at home or at the dairy shed. But in a generic sense, I guess the basic approach is to take, say, I don't know, a one litre sample of your made up or reconstituted uh, curding C M R. So just take it uh, out of what you've mixed up for your calves. Um, head back home to the kitchen, or if you've got a sink in the smoker room at the dairy, you can you can do this there, and just put into the bottom of the uh, kitchen sink. Uh, Just some warm water, and what we're aiming for, so you need to grab a thermometer for this, is to get it to a nice warm uh, water in the bottom of the sink, sort of 40, 41 degrees, somewhere around there. And then you grab your one litre of your mixed up or or, or made up CMR, and maybe um, put that into a plastic jug, or maybe into an ice cream container, so that's half full of your CMR, and just very carefully place that into the sink, and and let it sit there and, and warm up a bit. And then this is where we need a source of uh, renin that you can purchase where you can get the likes of Renco just from the supermarket or you can get bigger container fulls maybe from the vets or from, I think, some of the retailers sell it as well. But, look, what you do is if you've got, like, your Renco-type product, you add uh, five mils, so that's roughly a teaspoon, uh, and mix it in really, really well. Maybe maybe a whisk or something's pretty good or a fork, and, and you let it sit for, depends, you know, some people reckon sort of five or six minutes. Now, by that stage, if your skim or whole milk curd and CMR is good quality, you should get a nice formed curd. It looks like, sounds a bit gross, but it looks like a milk jelly. You've probably seen this if ever you've added the likes of Renko or one of those other products into your milk for your calves. And you should be able to just get a teaspoon of light like cut or even scoop a big uh, wobbly chunk out of it. That's what we do want. If you want to know what a decent curd should look like, and you're doing this for the first time, what you could do is, mix, is do do this with your CMR, but at the same time, do the same with maybe a litre of like just your blue top milk, um, or maybe some of the, um, the transition milk, you know, not, not your first milk, gold colostrum, but some of the colostrum out of um, your colostrum vat. Uh, just whatever, blue top milk's handy, but if your milk price is going up, you don't want to use it, that's fine too. But yeah, long story short, use, use it as what we call a control to compare against your CMR, your curding CMR. And what we're looking for is your CMR to look very similar to a decent curd that will form with blue top milk. So yeah, good ways to um, to do this. You'll find um, probably Google and, and on YouTube and whatnot. So if instead of a nice firm milk curd or jelly, if instead you just get a really flat, almost yogurt consistency like blob instead of a decent curd, um that, you know, comparing side by side with your blue top milk curd, chances are there could and we're just saying there could be some issues with the quality of your skim uh, and or whole milk powder, um, CMR and you could always have a yarn to your retailer about it and just ask about. Um, you know, we'll just say you've done a homemade curd test and they may well follow that up with the supplier for you and get um, the supplier to, to do a test as well, for example. So um, don't don't be afraid to reach out for your retailer uh, for a bit of support if you have any concerns. Uh, but remembering this curd test, just to reiterate or to ram home this point, is this relates only to curding. Uh, So you'll be sitting there for a long time after six minutes waiting for a whey-based CMR to form a decent curd because at at the best you might get a little bit of a yoghurt-like splotch with that, but um, in many cases it'll just just stay liquid. Hey, actually, that reminds me, while we're talking about um, rennet or, uh, you know, like commercial products, the likes of Renco or whatever, as well as using this for curd testing, many of you are probably already adding this um, to your milk, or colostrum, um, or your curding made-up milk powder, just as the calves are about to start drinking. And this is this is this can be helpful, provided it curds properly, of course. Um, obviously, because as the calves are drinking it, you're, you're giving them a double whammy of the naturally produced renin inside uh, her abomasum. So, yeah, it can be handy, might be handy for the um, second feed after you've transported calves, you know, electrolytes first, and then you add um a renin based product to the first milk feed when you do feed them. But obviously um for for beginners, don't don't do this like ten minutes before you're gonna feed the calves, or you might well come back to a lovely big <laughs> lump of milk jelly that clearly the calves will struggle to slurp up through the teeth. So yeah, yeah. I oh, actually and one more thing about rennet or rennin, rennet, uh, while we're talking about it, so rennin rennet, same thing, is that Rennet, in many, most cases, is actually of animal origin. And I know the question comes up, uh, quite often you'll ask this of your vet or perhaps your ruminant nutritionist, is that we always are cautious about feeding feeds of ruminant origin back to ruminants. And that's to do with from the 1980s in the UK with mad cow disease, etc. that uh, we don't want to feed ruminant proteins back to ruminants so a very fair question would be can we actually feed animal origin uh, renin products such as Renco to calves well yes we can and MPI that's uh, Ministry for Primary Industries here in New Zealand uh, overseas listeners the regulation in New Zealand I don't know what it is overseas uh, says that we are we in New Zealand are allowed to feed renin or rennet of animal origin to calves because it's not considered to be categorised as a ruminant protein, so therefore we are allowed to feed it to ruminants here, including our baby calves. But look, just a point, I guess, and uh, for outside of New Zealand you might just want to check that, because if you talk to the cheesemakers, there are actually rennet-type products of non-animal origin. I think, I don't know know how they, I think it's from fungi or something, but anyway, there are vegetarian uh, or uh, vegan-type ones that can be used if... Also, uh, perhaps philosophically, you know, feeding animal origin um, renin to your calves isn't your thing. I fully respect that. Um, so there are non-animal origin ones, if that's the case. It's not to do with uh, urenco or rennet, uh, but while we're on the topic of adding things to it's obviously yogurtized milk and that's a very common thing I know for a lot of you that'll be listening in and, you know, perhaps you're you know do a starter I guess with a with a uh, pot of natural yogurt from the supermarket or you know uh, the O sachets or just whatever but the aim of doing that isn't to increase curding in the abomasum even though obviously <laughs> if it sets overnight um, your yogurtized milk might look quite curdy but it's it's actually it's thickened from the production of lactic acid it's acting in a different way to adding more renin into it so um, great idea yogurtized milk I, I actually think it's it's a good thing and the idea is to what we're doing is in your tub of um, of yogurt from the supermarket. We've actually got a lot of lactobacilli, which, as the name suggests, are a type of or a number of species of bacteria that produce lactic acid. So we're acidifying the milk uh, to try and get the calf to uh, have a little bit more acid when it's drinking, and that's good for it. Pre-acidification in case that acid, the stress, in the and the abomasum isn't working too well. And secondly, to offer some healthy beneficial bacteria that hopefully survive the abomasum acid and end up in the small intestine. So it's very much about um, acidifying your milk by yogurtizing it and populating the gut with the the good guy's bacteria, I suppose, and it's not so much that curd effect. The only thing about yogurt is that the species of lactobacilli aren't necessarily the best ones there are um, for populating the small intestine. So when you pick up some of your probiotic products, they will contain a range of lactobacillus at different species that have been proven to set up a, a good fermentation in the small intestine, which is why probiotic products are usually going to claim to be better than uh, simply adding yogurt. But if you're looking at those products, just ask for a little bit of science behind it of saying, well, what's the difference to me of using these products versus just chucking in the yogurt, eh? So, yeah, shop, in de- shop around and ask for data, you know, show us the numbers before you, you invest in those products, but many of them are very good. So we bounced through the whey-based CMRs before, and so we'll come back to those now. So these are based, as the name suggests, on whey, and they're non-curding. They don't curd in the abomasum of your calves calves. Like we say, typically these are based on uh, straight uh, dried whey and and quite often contain whey protein concentrates just to get the protein levels up. And like we said before, they're a by-product of different um, types of cheese manufacturers, so there's different types of whey Um, sweet whey, um, acid whey, all sorts of things. Anyway, we'll leave that one alone. And there's a whole range of products out there with a whole lot of different claims, different ratios of whey, whey protein concentrates, and in some cases will contain um, other proteins that are of a non-milk origin that we'll talk about a little bit shortly. The main thing to remember is they don't form a curd, so they move through the abomasum Relatively quickly to the small intestine, but the abomasum, even if there isn't a curd forming, will still regulate movement from the abomasum to the small intestine. So it's not that the abomasum becomes a wide open tube and the way CMR just surges straight to the intestines. As I say, even without the curd, there'll be some regulation and of the timeliness of movement of a small intestine, but typically it's a little quicker than, than when you have a curd form. The reason we don't get a curd is when you think about it, I've never made cheese, hopefully we have some avid cheesemakers listening in and, and you can tell us more about cheese, do a post in the room in the room for us. But essentially the casein proteins have been largely removed along with to the fat uh, to make cheese, and that's why cheese is so yummy, of course. And it's not a problem because the whey proteins that are left over once the casein proteins have jumped into the lump of cheese, uh, calves are very able to digest the whey proteins, understandably because when the curd contracts, releasing whey proteins. So the calf has been designed by Mother Nature to digest whey proteins, so life's good. So when we feed calf milk replacers to very young calves, you know, like as we've defined, certainly um, under the age of two to three weeks. This is when we do need to be very, I suppose, proactive in making sure we get a good quality whey-based CMR. Whey-based CMRs are indeed suitable for young calves, but we'll put a couple of caveats or riders, I suppose, on that topic or that statement. Because under the age of two to three weeks, these calves are when they're at their most vulnerable as far as risk of nutritional scours or diarrhea. So, probably the two things if you need to consider, if you are looking at uh, whey CMR feeding for your very young calves, two things to consider. Firstly, we need a very good quality whey based CMR, preferably that does not contain non-milk proteins. We'll come back to that point. And secondly, you'll have to be particularly precious or fastidious, I suppose, about your hygiene. And we're going to talk more about the importance of hygiene in the calf sheds if you choose to feed uh, good quality whey-based CMRs to your calves. And so we'll move on to why those two things are so important. But I think we'll just acknowledge here that many of you listening a little bit nervy, and perhaps it's, perhaps you've been burnt in the past, um, a little bit nervy about feeding whey-based CMRs to your baby calves, you know, that first two or even three weeks. And I know that a lot of you quite often will feed a a curding type of CMR, you know, to your baby calves, and then maybe switch over to whey-based from two to three weeks of age when that risk of nutritional scours is starting to back off. Just whatever works for you. But... I guess coming back to the two things, the the provisos that I think you need to consider if you are going to feed whey-based CMR to your younger calves, first is that if we go for some of the cheaper, cheap and cheerful whey-based CMRs sold here in New Zealand anyway, probably the same overseas, is that quite often those will contain proteins of non-milk origin. So if you look at the back of the bag, you might see things like hydrolyzed wheat proteins for example uh, or in some of the cheaper products particularly you may see soy protein concentrates so the I guess as a rule of well as a rule of thumb but this is up to personal preference and advice directly from your uh, the supplier of the product your vet or your room nutritionist you follow their advice but probably my rule of thumb is typically for those two to three week old calves I'd not necessarily use those that contain non-milk proteins but saving them for older calves you know from maybe two or three weeks of age through to weaning just because the the non-milk or the plant-based proteins sometimes a slightly lower digestibility compared with the milk-based CMR ones and we just think they're probably better suited for those older calves but look just to I suppose underline that point there's no hard fast rules here and this is where the I guess the loveliness of calf-rearing businesses in New Zealand, everyone's totally different to everyone else. So some of you it'll work really well, some not. I think coming back to the, the final point around um, feeding whey-based CMRs to very young calves is that we've got to be a little bit precious about hygiene and keeping things, everything fastidiously clean, particularly, well, for all calves, but especially these baby calves. If you're feeding whey-based CMRs is that if you've got a lot of pathogens around, and even though the abomasum's pretty good at slowing the flow of non-curling CMRs into the small intestine, if you did get a little bit of rather rapid flow and the protein digestibility wasn't that great, we just might have a slightly higher load of um, both lactose and proteins arriving in that At the level of the small intestines, and if you do have a high pathogen load there, they just might go a bit wild. So I think that's the key reason why you'll say some businesses get away with feeding poorer quality whey-based CMRs to their young calves and they have no problems, and it may just be that they're particularly fastidious about hygiene, and that someone else down the road might be feeding same type of calf, same colostrum management, everything else is the same, but perhaps you know, they're not doing vercon, you know, a couple of times a week, or perhaps they're not changing, you know, bedding, you know, uh, wood chips or sawdust, you know, for the whole duration of calf rearing and they've got a build-up of pathogens. There's a lot of risk factors, and this is where we say a lot of risk factors for where sometimes nutritional scours will occur and sometimes they'll move through to infectious scour um, causes. So enough about about way based CMRs. I know a lot of you will be great fans, uh, and rightly so, but just, you know, there's a few a few things to think about there. What about colostrum and risk of nutritional scars? Well, I bet you'll be very much like me. I love colostrum for calves. Um, for all the reasons we went in the the first podcast episode. And obviously, you know, colostrum's just Mother Nature's amazing thing, liquid feed. It's just magic for, for baby calves. Not only especially during those first few hours of age for uh, transferring all of those immunoglobulins, uh, IgG particularly, to calves during you know those, as I say, first few hours, but but also all the other amazing goodness in colostrum. You know, there's um <laughs> not much not to like about colostrum as a feed for older calves, and and this of course is great, particularly the immunoglobulins. So even with your transition milk, so that's your colostrum mob that you know, doesn't necessarily well shouldn't be containing your gold colostrum, hopefully, that you're keeping back for your newborn calves. But it's still a really good source of uh, source of immunoglobulins, so IgG, IgM, all the other ones. And even after the intestines lost its ability to absorb those immunoglobulins, certainly by the time the calf's uh, a day to two days of age, they can't absorb them into the bloodstream anymore, it's still really good to have local immunoglobulins in the small intestine. They can actually uh, be be a what we call lo- local immunity, where they help the uh, calf fight the multiplication up of bacteria, and also sort of help coat the lining of the small intestine and, and bounce some of those bad boys, those those pathogens through. So it's really really good. But the other aspect of feeding your transition milk from the colostrum herd or stored colostrum to your older calves is that on average. You know, this transition milk, it's certainly nowhere as good as as your first milk colostrum, the gold colostrum. But wow, there's higher concentrations of all the good stuff, total solids, Uh, made up of protein and fat and higher levels of all all the other goodies like fat soluble vitamins and minerals and my goodness it's just magnificent for feeding to calves I think the only thing on average that's lower in your transition milk compared to vat milk is lactose mainly just because it's so full of all the other goodies. So with this transition milk sometimes the solids levels we can have too much of a good thing, you can't win can you? So the only thing about colostrum and I don't want to be negative about colostrum but the only thing with regard to risk of uh, nutritional scours is that sometimes feeding colostrum, you know, so your transition milk, and it may be that you've got ample gold colostrum for your calves and you just end up first milk colostrum goes into the colostrum vat and it's quite a rich load of goodness in that transition milk, is that it may be, I suppose, in not using technical terms, too rich. It's just too good for calves. And that can ironically increase risk of nutritional scours. You you can't win, can you? So look, we don't entirely understand why transition milk might be too much, just too much of a good thing for younger calves particularly, two to three weeks of age. But it's likely that it's just simply too much of your total solids per litre, particularly with regard to risk of nutritional scours that milk protein and minerals for younger calves, so it may be the spillage uh, or overflow from the abomasum, you know, of proteins that just overwhelms the abomasin's ability to digest proteins. And remembering these baby calves, if they're stressed, or just the simple fact they're very young that they just haven't got the acid present in the abomasum to deal to it. But look, at the end of the day, we'll apply the old expression, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So if you feed transition milk to calves, young calves, and you have no nutritional scouring and and life is good, just keep going with it, eh? Just stick with it. As we said, the nutritional benefits and those are local immunity benefits of the immunoglobulins are just awesome, so keep on going. On the other hand, if you have at any stage been burnt, if you'd like, Uh, and got nutritional scours feeding very young calves with your colostrum mob milk or transition milk. The other thing you can do is to dilute down the colostrum with very clean, fresh uh, water. You can obviously use, um, you know, warm water. Don't add water, hot, probably hotter than 60 degrees because you might damage some of the immunoglobulins in there. But anyway, you can dilute it down so it's not as rich. so So you dilute down the total solids level. It's hard to say how much to dilute it down, but, you know, the rule of thumb, if you're not uh, testing quality, maybe you are using a bricks meter to test quality of your transition milk, but other, if you're not doing anything like that, maybe it's just two parts or even three parts colostrum, you might add one part water, and if you think about it and do the maths, I guess if we say your vat milk, normal vat milk's maybe 13% solids, that's fat protein plus lactose. Yeah, transition milk, and again, it's hard to predict depending on the genetics of your herd and how many gold colostrums are milking into the colostrum vat or uh, whatever. But on average, that could be, transition milk might be 17 to even 19% solids, fat, protein, and lactose, compared to 13%. So you can sort of see where the old timers that have taught us really well over the years say, you know, a two to one ratio of, of colostrum transition milk to water. It's probably a, a middle-of-the-road recommendation, but again, or as recommended by your vet or your qualified ruminant nutritionist. But again, don't dilute it if you don't have problems, but just something to think about because it's, it's still Mother Nature's best feed, but sometimes it can be too much of a good thing. Right, moving into the last couple of farm-based factors that sometimes will increase the nutritional scare, and this one's all to do with when we mix up calf milk replaces CMRs. With your bags of CMR that arrive on farm on a pallet and you look at the back and you read the instructions about how many grams that you make up uh, to make one litre, so it might be 125 grams, 150 grams made up to a litre, these reconstitution rates can sometimes change the risk of nutritional scours if... We add too much CMR per every one liter of finished liquid feed. We talked earlier about osmotic scours, and remembering that osmotic scours happen because the poor old calf can't resorb the water from the inside the gut, and therefore you get this liquid scour out the back end and you end up with a dehydrated calf because it can't slurp the water back out of its gut contents into its tissues and lymphatics and whatnot, so remember that one. If we end up making up more CMR per litre, it means that there's a higher osmotic potential or it's more likely that that reconstituted CMR will hold to the water in the inside of the intestines and quite often this is reported as, as a measures of uh, osmolality and how hard I suppose that, that uh, liquid feed will hold onto its water and not allow the calf to slurp it back out again. So how do we prevent an osmotic scour happening because we don't get the mix rates right on our CMRs? First up we look at those reconstitution rates that, like we say, could be anything from 125, maybe 150 grams made up to a total of one litre. At that kind of mix rates, you're likely to be at pretty low risk of causing uh, the osmotic form of a nutritional scare. And the younger calves that are, again, at most at risk of nutritional scours, which is at two to three weeks... Where we start to get into a little bit of risk is when we end up with higher mix rates. We're thinking maybe 170 to 180 grams of CMR made up to one litre for these younger calves. We're definitely getting into risky territory there. The key thing here is we are talking about younger calves and as calves get older, let's say older than two to three weeks of age, certainly older than three weeks of age, they're just a lot more resilient to the effects of osmotic scours. And that's why these older calves can actually handle higher mix rates of CMR beyond those upper rates of maybe 150 grams made up to a litre for the baby calves. And that is likely why a lot of the CMR companies are comfortable to recommend Higher mix rates, so, so a thicker, making a thick shake if you'd like. Maybe, I've seen recommendations up to 300 grams made up to one litre. That's getting pretty uh, pretty potent for older calves. So that company's very quick to say that's only for older calves, but that's certainly very high. So main thing is, is try to stick to that 125 to 150 grams for baby calves, and then for older calves over three weeks, you can go to higher mix rates perhaps to support once-a-day systems, but just still be aware that some types of CMR can cause problems even for older calves made up at very high rates. And while we're on that topic, remember I've said a couple of times now that not all CMRs are equal, and we've got those different categories, you know, the curding ones, the non-curding, whey-based ones. The different types of CMR mean that some types contain particularly high inclusion rates of lactose, and also ash, and so that's just the component of the mineral part of the CMR. Now, the higher the content of lactose in a CMR, and the higher the content of of ash or minerals in a CMR, the more likely you are to cause an osmotic scour with those high lactose, high ash products. So that's just another comment to say not all CMRs are equal. So we're counting down towards the last couple of factors to talk about now. Moving on to another one that's, um, we've got to be careful, or is a no-no for calves from a management point of view and risk of nutritional scours in young calves. Electrolytes. Electrolytes and milk. So we're not going to talk a lot about electrolytes here, but it's an absolute given that providing our dehydrated calves with lots of made up oral electrolytes is simply the number one most important way to save scouring calves, whether that's from nutritional scars or from infectious ones. So, electrolytes are hugely important, and maybe we'll focus another podcast on the importance of electrolytes another day perhaps. But while we're on this topic of scouring, remember the most important thing that we have to do is not to mix electrolytes in with transition or vat milk or colostrum or a curding CMR. Now the reason we don't want to mix electrolytes with any of our curding types of feeds, whether that's fat milk or CMR, is that you will definitely increase the risk of nutritional scours in young calves. So it's a shame, it's real easy to tip electrolytes in with milk, but no, no, no. Simply because that presence of electrolytes mixed up with the uh, curding uh, liquid feed that'll actually reduce or even stop the formation of the curd in the abomasum. And of course, as you now know very well, reduced or no curd causes nutritional scours in these two to three week old calves or younger. So yes, for scouring, you'll definitely have to get stuck in with electrolytes on their own as a standalone feed or tubing if a calf's not not feeding very well. But what you're going to have to do is feed those electrolytes at least 30 minutes before a milk feed, or may, even maybe as much as two hours before a milk feed. Different ranges out there with all the different scientists saying what that timing should be, that all the scientists do agree never to give electrolytes just before or at the same time as any curding liquid feed, transition milk, colostrum, skim milk or whole milk-based CMR. And this is the last topic you'll be pleased to know. I don't know how many times you've needed to stop and start this podcast because I've rambled on a bit too long. But look, on average, the risk of nutritional scours increases when younger calves are fed once a day rather than twice a day feeding. Now there's a few reasons for this but possibly one is that these very young calves younger than two to three weeks might be potentially a bit more stressed in terms of behavioural stress if they're only fed once a day compared to if they've got full bellies twice a day. So if they're fed once a day and they're quite hungry as very young calves certainly they'll vocalise, they don't play as much. And these other indicators of some stress and welfare issues, and that will increase risk of nutritional scours. The other thing too, just from a gut physiology point of view, these baby calves really aren't as clever at digesting larger volumes in one sitting, you know, on once a day feeding. We don't know entirely why that is. It could be that uh, younger calves still aren't producing quite as much acid in their abomasum as older calves are. Or well, maybe it's just that they don't yet have the the stretch capacity in their baby rapidly developing abomasum. Whatever the reason, uh, we think that, that younger calves should be on twice a day and not once a day. So, for sure, some people do recommend feeding younger calves on once a day, um, and you know, feed them more concentrated C M R, for example, or or even add C M R to vat milk to get around that volume thing and and uh, risk of abomasal overflow. So for sure, once a day does save labour, it keeps the costs down for dairy beef, it improves your margins, etc. But look, for these younger calves, where there's other risk factors present for nutritional scours, we do think that once a day feeding for young calves less than two to three weeks of age is potentially going to increase risk of nutritional scours depending on the presence or absence of other risk factors. But again, here's that terminology, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If you do once a day feed your younger calves very successfully, well done. But just note that for some people, this practice may create increased risk of scours. Well, you'll be pleased to know that that's another of our rather long podcasts, finishing up uh, everything to do with calves, and in this case, around that risk of nutritional scours. Now I guess summing up is there's a heap of lots of different risk factors for nutritional scours, remembering it's a perfect storm. Usually you have one or more risk factors that kick off and uh, trip up things so that calves start to scour and it's all to do with things such as stress, uh, such as reconstitution rates, such as um, feeding high rates of very good quality colostrum that's a bit too rich, to num- name a number of those factors. But the main thing here is that there's no two calf-rearing systems or businesses that are identical, and I'm sure that we've only scratched the surface on this, and I reckon that most of you will have some your very own tips and tricks that you'd like to add here that worked, you know, super well for you uh, to reduce risk of nutritional scours. And because there's so much expertise out there with you guys, if you are a member of the Facebook group, The Room and Room, jump on, add to the post that's talking about this podcast and comment and tell us all about those amazing things that you do at home um, to reduce risk of scours in your calves. We'd love to hear from you. So look, in the meantime, do keep keeping well. I suppose that a term, keep keeping well during the the busy calving season and eat well and try and get some sleep. Keep the stress off you. We know that stress isn't good for calves and it's not for you or us either. But on behalf of myself, this has been Charlotte Westwood and on behalf of our sponsors as well, PGG Rights and Seeds. We'd once again like to say thank you so much for listening in and um, the numbers of downloads we're getting. You're obviously chatting to your friends, which is great to see. So thanks for that. And again, we do hope this topic, long as it has been, will be helpful with some ideas about trying to uh, manage or prevent nutritional scours and therefore infectious scours in your calves. But look, more information about all things to do with Ruminant Nutrition, just head over to Facebook. Search up the Room and Room group and join that if uh, you're not already part of our ruminant nutrition community. We'd love to have you part of that group. Thanks again for tuning in. Take care and have an amazing day. Cheers.